0: Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 3. Just a few words here in verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. God's will that's revealed in these verses implies that if his people do his will, he will bless them. If both parents and children strive to please the Lord Jesus, they will all be blessed. This verse especially shows the church God's will for parents, towards their children, and particularly for fathers. Fathers must follow God's order of authority by taking the reins of authority in their home. But in the government of children, fathers must not provoke them, lest they become discouraged. God's instruction here could be viewed as friendly counsel for parents for how to give your children a lift in life. If you're a young person who suddenly found out that your parents had laid aside a great deal of money for you so you could go to college, you would be right to be humbled and thankful for such a gift. That's a great gift and its greatness lies in its intent to set you up for success. But what if there was a better gift that parents could give that would strengthen their children for the rest of their lives? Strength, you say? How are we talking about strength? How can I make my children strong? Well, that word at the end of verse 21 is the word discouraged. It's basically a word for a kind of weakness in the heart for a disheartened child. Discouraged, disheartened, people are weak. They're troubled by adversity and adversaries alike. The opposite of discourage is courage. The opposite of disheartened is hearten. In other words, if parents govern in godly ways that do not provoke, they will encourage their children, giving them a gift of strength to last a lifetime that's more valuable than college. This morning, let's talk about The signs and symptoms of a disheartened child. And then we'll have to brush up on parental duties. And then we'll talk about provoking actions that fathers should avoid. And then this evening there's more to say about all of this. What are the signs and symptoms of a disheartened child? It's that word discouraged that we're trying to see very clearly here. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. A discouraged child has lost heart. Sometimes we uh, relate happiness to having heart. But a disheartened child could appear happy on the outside, at least for a time. If you buy a disheartened child an ice cream cone, she'll be content for the moment, but as soon as it's gone, the old problems are back, which shows you that they never really went away. You can recognize disheartenment, not by a temporary bout of unhappiness but by a repetitive, regular or increasing discouragement. Sometimes parents notice that they have a sulky child. That's when a child feels injured. Say if a brother or sister took a toy away from him or said something they don't like the, the child may go out by himself to pout and cry and to give in to those feelings of anger and injustice and so on. Sulkiness is never righteous. The Lord Jesus never sulked as a child. And as parents see sulkiness, they should have a gentle, helpful way of guiding those little hearts out of it, or else by by habit it will become sullenness. Sullenness means gloomily angry or silent. The sullen are cross. They can't be drawn out. It's a sign of a discouraged child. Is a child withdrawn? Is he avoiding other children or adults? He may be disheartened. Is she rebellious, rebelling against authority, choosing rebellious clothing? You may recognize such things from disheartenment in your own youth. Is a child seen crying frequently or hiding? Does a child injure himself or is he often lethargic, sluggish or apathetic? Like, I don't care, such a child is probably disheartened. But what's a parent to do? God's word here, and this is good news, God's word here is here to help parents exercise a kind of preventative medicine, governing our families so our children never lose heart, and so that children will trust their parents to help them if they ever begin to lose heart. God has invested parents with authority So that the parents can be the hands and the voice of the Lord Jesus to their children. And that means doing like the Lord did. Building them up and giving them strength. As we think about these signs of discouragement, we have got to make an important distinction. There's a much deeper matter here than you probably think. Discouragement is not a psychological phenomenon. It's not merely a psychological phenomenon. The courage and strength that God has in store for a Christian family is a spiritual matter related to faith in God. The healthy, strong, courageous heart is not merely happy without God, as many worldly people seem to be. It is a heart content in God. It's a heart Gaining strength from God, as we sang in Psalm 84, they go from strength to strength. In other words, merely being a positive, affirming parent does not fulfill the scope of parenting duties. Heartened or disheartened, I'm saying, is a spiritual matter. Think of this as an example. The person who dies, at any age, is someone's child. No matter how much self-confidence that person had in life, to die an unbeliever is to lose heart forever. We know that as people age they get physically weaker and then to die to realize that you are not being escorted to everlasting joy but to everlasting torment. Weakness and misery is to have every last shred of worldly confidence clipped away. I say again to have heart is a spiritual phenomenon, not a matter of self-esteem. Therefore, a discouraged child, as the scripture sees it, is one who has been dissuaded by his parents from a holy life of following God. An encouraged child gets strength from God, from a holy life. And this means that parents have a role to play in the salvation Of their children. Someone might object to that statement. And say well I know parents. Who did everything right. And their children still. Rejected God. We know that can happen. Because in salvation. God is sovereign. Parents can be the very model parents. And a child can still refuse. The God of their fathers. As many on earth. Who heard the voice of the Lord Jesus. And felt his healing hands, at the end shouted, crucify him. Ultimately, salvation is God's choice. The faith we parents have in God takes account of God's sovereignty. We believe the scriptures that God ordains both the means and the end of a thing. Like this, God ordained that Moses should escape from the hand of Pharaoh. And God ordained the reeds to grow by the riverbank in the Nile to hide him, a sister to watch him, a princess to find him. Or as God says in Isaiah 54, I created the smith who blows the coals into flame to create a weapon for war. He ordains means and ends. So knowing this, parents have every reason to think that their own character and their own example and their own (laughs) faithful labor in their duties may be the means God uses to save their children. Of course, we know it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. But how do you know, parents, that the gracious way in which you deal with sin in your home and in the way you teach the gospel in your catechism and in your family worship, how do you know that that is not the avenue by which God reaches your children's hearts? Faith in God believes the means are important. It does not give up and say, Oh well, nothing I can do will make a difference. That's called unbelief. Belief obeys. It takes every instruction of God seriously. Our sovereign God governs and saves. He saves immediately, yes, by the regeneration of His Holy Spirit. But even the regenerate exercise faith in the gospel, which entails that somehow sinners come to know the gospel. So God also saves immediately by the means he's appointed. We have to learn as children, we hope, or at any age, we have to learn who the Lord Jesus is before we can call upon him and be saved. Hear what James 1.18 says. Of his own will, that's God's sovereign choice. He brought us forth. That's regeneration. By the word of truth, that's the means, the gospel. I say again, God has ordained the means even as he has ordained the end. A child having heart or not having heart is a spiritual matter and it depends on parents. In part, it depends on parents. So as we're thinking about means now, let's consider some duties that parents have to prosper their child spiritually. These are duties that a parent has for prospering their child spiritually. The word fathers there at the beginning of verse 21 implies duties because parents and fathers particularly are the governing authority in the home. To be a father, I think I'm speaking to the choir here, so to speak, the father is not merely a biological contributor to his child's life. He's not a progenitor merely. He is to take an active and present role of leadership in the family. One duty parents have is to bring their children To be admitted to the visible church through baptism. I anticipate already that someone may say. You picked the least important thing to talk about. Why are you talking about that? But is there anything that God commands us that we can say that's not important? Is there anything that we can leave out and say. Well probably God does not use that for our good. And his glory. Parents have a duty to bring their children for admission to the visible church through baptism. And that uh, to, to explain that a little more, the means of grace are means that God may use to bring our sinful children to saving faith and repentance. Baptism is one of them. It's said that Martin Luther, was, when he was tempted to sin, would reassure himself and strengthen himself against that temptation with the Latin words, baptizatus sum, I am baptized, I am a Christian. When infants are baptized, their parents vow in the presence of God to pray for their children, to teach them of their personal need for faith in the Lord Jesus, to lead them in seeking first the Kingdom of God. At baptism, the pastor asks the congregation to vow, saying, Do you, the members of this congregation, receive the child into your fellowship, and promise to pray for him and to help and encourage the parents? as they seek to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the parents, the congregation, sorry, the congregation promises yes. The body of Christ, see, has a role to play in the saving of souls. Some churches are practicing baby dedications. Parents want the righteous, good thing for their newborn babies. They want their child to know Christ and to serve him They want their child set apart for Christ and they have the right motives to dedicate but their church leads them into error. The church has no warrant to invent ceremonies for worship. Christians must do and teach everything Christ has commanded us. We may not add to it or subtract from it. His word is the truth that sanctifies us without sanctification. No one will see God. The scriptures do not authorize Baby dedication. There's no New Testament baby dedication. Mary and Joseph took the Lord Jesus for presentation according to the Mosaic ceremonial law. And if Christians are hoping to mimic such a presentation, they have to do likewise all that that ceremony requires. Bringing their firstborn with animal sacrifice. And if Christians rightly feel that animal sacrifice would be blasphemous now that Christ has offered himself as propitiation, then let the parents search for a scriptural and Christ-instituted right for setting apart not just their firstborn, but all their children to God. And they'll easily find that the waters of baptism were offered for the household of Cornelius, Acts 10. The household of Lydia was baptized. Acts 16. The household of the Philippian jailer was baptized. The household of Crispus was baptized. And the household of Stephanus was baptized. The theological reason. That we place water on our children. As a sign and seal. Of the covenant of grace. Is that the promise of the covenant. Is for you and for your children. Words you'll remember from Acts 2. Baptism is a duty of love. Herman. Vitius said it this way: Here is the extraordinary love of God, that as soon as we are born, and just as we come from our mother, He has commanded us to be solemnly brought from her bosom, as it were, into His own arms, that we should, sorry, that He should bestow upon us in the very cradle the tokens of our dignity and future kingdom, that He should put the song in our mouth. Thou didst make me hope when I was on my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Psalm 22. That in a word, to continue this quote, he should join us to himself in the most solemn covenant from our most tender years, the remembrance of which, as it is glorious and full of consolation to us, so in like manner it tends to promote Christian virtues, and the strictest holiness through the whole course of our lives. Other important duties you have probably thought of are these. Parents must give their children the necessities of life, food, clothing, and shelter. They should train them in an honest career. Parents should pray for their children. They should try to lay up an inheritance for them. They should give them away in marriage at the proper time. They should warn them against sin and they should put their children in check when they sin and should do it at the right time and not too late. The goal of parenting is not first good behavior. The goal is not first good behavior. The goal is Christ's government that leads the child to willingly submit to Christ and for that parents should train and instruct them in learning the Lord's ways. They should teach scripture doctrine, not the Sunday school teacher only, not the pastor only, not a volunteer, but the parents must teach them. You hear the word grooming nowadays, meaning to cultivate likes and dislikes in a child so they go a certain way. Well, parents, our duty is to groom unto godliness, and one tool to accomplish this is family worship. Family worship is just the worship of God in the home. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, Thou shalt teach them, God's laws he means, unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. God pictures parents talking of God's ways, whether the family is in motion or holding still. From eating a meal, to going to bed, to hiking a mountain, to moving cows, or anything. Most people now are so busy they're never at home, or so distracted and activity-filled when they're at home there's no time to talk. But God commands us to talk. Family worship requires you fathers to carve out time for worship at home. Family worship should include prayer and reading of scripture. It may and probably should include the singing of a song. It may include catechizing and admonition about sins and discussion that builds faith in God. Fathers, keep it short. Read a portion of scripture. Insist that children sit quietly and still for the reading. Say, we're reading God's word now, so listen. Children who disobey should be taken from the room. And given a spanking without anger, with instructions appropriate to their age, when reading God's word, you need to be quiet because we're worshiping the Lord. Are you ready to go back to worship? And when the child has composed itself, pick up where you left off. Read a portion, going in order through a book of the Bible. Read a Bible guide out loud to help you understand it. Fathers, explain what you know, and you do know a lot, more than your children, and ask simple questions. What was the name of the man who did such and so? What was the Lord Jesus doing in the temple? Probably your children are going to have questions, and that's going to lead to discussion. Talk about whatever sins the passage is highlighting, and about Christ as the remedy for our sins. Pray for a few minutes. Sing a psalm together. All told, family worship could last as little as ten minutes. When discussion gets going, it may last longer. Does this seem too big a burden? Christ says, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, Someone might say, if family worship won't miraculously save my child, why do I need to worship in my home? We go to church, right? That's good enough? Well, here are a few reasons. For one, Christ wants us fathers to be leaders, even as he is the leader. Do you think Christ would lead those under his authority not to worship, or would he lead them to worship? We can only be the hands and the voice of Christ if our leadership is drawing our family to worship God. Another reason to worship as families is this, that our children came into the world sinners because of us. Our sin problem is so outside of our control that we are not capable of reproducing a sinless person. You know only one sinless person was ever born. Seeing that we can only produce a creature that if left untouched by God will be destined for sin and misery in hell, we should care enough about those little souls to introduce them to the remedy for their original sin and their guilt. And fathers, that means dying to self every day so that we can teach them about the Savior's love. It means correcting those children in their sin and restraining their sin. It means being compassionate towards them and teaching them the truth. And that uh, teaching is well done in family worship. Friends, we have a strong biblical example of Abraham, God said in Genesis eighteen nineteen. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. That they shall keep the way of the Lord, and do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. See the connections here. The way of the Lord goes one way. The proper exercise of fatherly authority directs the whole house into God's way. God's blessings are in that way. There's no explicit command in scripture for family worship. But the scripture supports the idea at every point. Psalm 78 reminds us that God established a testimony in Jacob, commanding fathers to teach their children. Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, Acts 10. Men should pray in every place, 1 Timothy two eight, God really desires all people to call upon his name. And as Isaiah says, to rouse themselves, to take hold of God. We have to be active and deliberate to fan into flame the gift of God, 2 Timothy 1. Someone has once compared parents to Christ's archers. You know, an archer is someone who shoots arrows from a bow. We get a few good shots with the gospel to evangelize our children while they're close. The day's coming when they're going to move further away. Beloved, take advantage of the close shots. Once children leave home, the target is far. And of course we can and we should pray for our children then after they leave the home, but we should be prayerful and dutiful now praying that the Holy Spirit would direct these gospel arrows to their hearts, that their children might find the Redeemer. We should pray for sharp arrows, that is, that our speech in the home will be clear and plain and simple and true, and their children will come to know Christ. We know from the Word, we see in our experience, what happens if parents neglect to train their children in God's ways. People become lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Second Timothy 3. Can I ask you what other God has come in the flesh to deliver us from sins such as these? God has a good design for the children that you parents love. Therefore, we should all believe on him. If you recognize God's grace for your family, there is only one response that brings him honor, and that is faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. We must not be complacent when God has placed such a high calling upon us. For you fathers and parents whose children have grown up, if your opportunities have passed you by and you say, I didn't even know God back then. I shot no arrows. I cared nothing for him. Be hopeful, because with God it is never too late. There are do-overs of a kind in redemption. You can't go back in time, but you can go forward with a redeemed life. Confess to your children that you're sorrowful, that you never brought the gospel to them, and ask their forgiveness. Ask if they would be willing to hear about the Savior from you. Think of the other children with whom you now have the opportunity for a godly influence. Kids in the church or in the community. And devote your, your renewed efforts there. Start family worship with your life even if decades have gone by since you should have begun. Because God's blessing has not gone away. Pray for your children. There's not a rebel on earth who may not still be recovered to God some years after his parents' death, sometimes that happens, any rebel, even Manasseh, the most wicked king in all Israel's history, turned back to God in his later years. Prayers are mean. One day we'll be able to see what good they did. We don't see it all clearly now. Fathers, we have duties to fulfill, but we are not alone. The confidence of such godly men as Gideon and Elijah, was in the same God in whom we place our confidence. Fathers, none other than the risen Lord Jesus stands by to help you. The King stands with you in your duties, extending his scepter from Zion. Christ has redeemed us, fathers. He's at work in us, and so we do not need to fear Let us be confident as Abraham was. Let us pray with our family. Let us teach them because it's Christ at work in us. So turning then to another important word that we find there in verse 21. We find we have to be warned about some provoking actions to avoid. Provoking actions to avoid because the scripture says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You see a woman. Perhaps she is perfectly normal to outside observation, but inside she's full of fear. She longs to have somebody say an approving word to her. She second guesses whether even her friends are true to her. She can't understand the Christ of Scripture because her heart desires so many things and she has no sense for how devotion to Christ can supply all her needs. What's wrong? As a grown-up, she is mentally and emotionally interacting with the unbiblical parenting she received as a child. She is disheartened because her parents fostered fearful, uncertain heart responses in her. Parents provoke their children when they distort discipline. Discipline is very hard for parents and so it's understandable why parents might desire to invent some methods of changing their child's behavior that seem more promising or at least a lot easier than biblical discipline. Unbiblical parenting methods may work for a time, but the end result is that they move their child's emotions and desires away from a holy life of following God. Unbiblical parenting methods do cause problems. Sometimes they're hidden, but they're real, long-lasting, and crippling. Ungodly governance of the house and home causes spiritual discouragement. Some parents bribe their children. If you clean your room, I'll give you a dollar. You see what's happening. The desire of the child for money and for what money buys is now being offered as motivation to obey lawful authority. The child has a self-serving desire, I can get candy or a new game or a toy. The child desires these goodies much more than he desires to serve and obey God. And so by bribing, a parent reinforces his child's pursuit of the idolatrous desire and circumvents what should be a desire to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength if we use self-interest to change our child's behavior, we will confirm the child in self-interest. Friends, people who work here at Quinter Public Schools say their jobs are greatly taken up by modifying or trying to modify the behavior of school children. That ought to tell us that unbiblical parenting is writ large on our community. Because if children were, willing followers of God's authority at home, it would be a cinch to submit to their teacher's authority at school. But since they do not, we may trace the problem back to unbiblical parenting. Some parents offer frequent rewards. There is a place for rewards and commendations, but a parent who offers them too much might say, when you do your regular chores, I'm going to give you something. Remember, fathers, that you are in charge. Mothers, you too. You have authority. Your child's regular chores and expectations for obeying your voice do not need to have a reward attached. If they do, what you'll train your child to do to is eye service, that is, only to obey when you're around to reward them. Otherwise, they won't obey. They'll be lazy There is not always a reward in this life, is there? Remember Luke 17, 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. When your pastor exhorts you to obey the Ten Commandments or to fulfill your duties according to God's word, there is no reward. Should we only obey God with if there is a reward? Or is there a more biblical motive that should drive us? How much better to train children to obey from biblical motives? And of course we can say that knowing that the rewards are in heaven when we're face to face with Christ. Some parents ground their children. And although I'm speaking against grounding, uh, I'm speaking generally. I think I understand that uh, humanity is diverse and so there may be some exception where this works; it has to work, like fostering children who, by law, are not permitted to be spanked. So I'm not weighing in on that right now at all. Uh, but I'm just saying what I am to say have to say about grounding is supposed to be the general principle for our own children. Some ground grounding is a kind of punishment for bad behavior, where the frustrated parent takes away the child's use of toys, playing with other kids playing with his bike or watching TV or something similar for a period of time. And parents ground their children when they don't know how to address what's going on inside that child's heart. Grounding is relatively easy on parents. It's punishment rather than discipline. A parent doesn't have to analyze what's happening in his child that caused that wrong behavior. A parent does not have to instruct in God's ways or discuss the heart matter of sin. A parent does not have to help his child to repent or bring the gospel to him as a remedy for his sin. A parent doesn't have to deal with the issue of behavior as dishonoring to God. Roundings of punishment. What would happen if God simply slapped us with a ticket or a fine or a jail sentence when we sinned? Will We would never learn to love Him and to serve Him with all our heart. Do you understand, brothers, that the preaching of the gospel is not God slapping us with a fine? He's not threatening punishment. He came to change our hearts. He came to break the power of sin in us so that he could present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God the Son has come and lived and died for us. He has risen again to give us newness of life. He came to bring the body of sin to nothing. That is, He's at work in the heart. And He came to make us obedient from the heart. So that we would obey Him having been set free from sin. This is Christ's design for fathers in disciplining their children. And if we distort biblical discipline, if we distort it, we may change our child's behavior without changing their hearts. That's the risk of this. Bad practices may not have the end result that our children hate us but they may dissuade our children from lives of holiness and following God. We may inadvertently train them to fear people's disapproval. We may train them to be unresponsive unless there's a reward attached When they become teenagers, they'll see through our manipulations. They may stop talking to us, may resist us, and openly rebel. Slowly, through our fatherly ineptitude, we may push them away from the cross. But fathers, we are Christ's agents, and so our discipline has to have a remedy in it. And that remedy is to help our children walk in newness of life. This evening, Lord willing, We'll see more about this and hear more about how we can strengthen our children. Let's pray. Our holy and righteous God, we confess to you our frequent sins as parents, our own ineptitude and unwillingness. We confess that we desire to go the easiest route. And that sometimes we have exemplified all that is fleshly and worldly in desiring worldly things far more than the honor of God. So we pray for your help for each one of us that we would honor you more than we honor our children. And that in honoring you we would be good parents to our children. That we would be like Christ in the way we talk to our children and in the way we help them and guide them in life. We pray too. That you would solidify us and strengthen us. Giving us the ambition that is godly. To carve out the time we need to worship the Lord. And to train our children to serve him. We pray for the children to obey their parents in everything because this pleases the Lord. And we ask you to forgive us then of our sins and our failures. Help us to move forward with confidence as redeemed people. We pray for grown children and ask that you would redeem them. Please bring back to their minds all that they have learned of the Gospel. Please bring conviction and the power of your Spirit. We pray that they would not rest until they know the peace of Christ. We commit ourselves to you and confess we are completely dependent upon you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.